0: Welcome to the Conversations with Christians Engage podcast. Hosted by Bunny Pounds, this podcast is created as part of our ministry to awaken, motivate, educate, and empower believers in Jesus Christ to pray for our nation and elected officials regularly, to vote in every election to impact our culture, and to help us engage our hearts in some form of civic education and involvement for the well-being of our nation. Please share this podcast and our ministry, with your family and friends by asking them to take our pledge to pray vote and engage they can take the pledge on our website at christiansengaged.org we can all change america one heart at a time we are here to serve you and empower you to be a leader in your community Today, we are joined by Dr. Jim Dennison of Dennison Forum. Dr. Dennison is a cultural apologist, speaker, and author, and he will be discussing his book, The Coming Tsunami, which is our book club pick for May 2022. In this conversation, Bunny and Dr. Dennison discuss the coming tsunamis facing our nation and our families' lives. You can find out more info on our book club on our website at Christiansengaged.org and click on the book club tab.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, however you're listening to us right now. We are excited uh, for an incredible conversation with Christians Engaged today. Wow, I mean, we had Sean Foyt a few weeks ago, guys. We are having people from all over the body of Christ and some of my greatest heroes that are teaching the Word of God with boldness in this hour. Today is no exception. Um, Someone I've wanted to talk to and meet Uh, For a long time, somebody I read daily um, in his daily uh, email that comes out, Dr. Jim Dennison. Dr. Dennison, it is an honor to have you today.
2: Uh, Thank you, Bunny. I'm glad to be on with you today. Grateful for what you're doing and glad to be in Common Cause with you.
1: Hey, well, we're all from the Dallas area. So I remember when you were pastoring at Park Cities Baptist and you've Uh, been a a strong part of where I graduated, Dallas Baptist University, went Mm -hmm. to Southwestern uh, Theological Seminary yourself. Um, And you were pastoring for many, many, many years. You've always been one unapologetic and one that's dug into the Word of God and really communicated that to people. But talk to us about the beginning of Denison Forum, because your commentary your books, 30 books now, your commentary on what's happening in America and what's happening in the news every day has getting millions of views every month. So it, there's a big need for people for what you do. What was the beginning of all that?
2: Well, thank you. That's a very kind question. I would love to tell you that we had a strategic business plan 13 years ago, that this was all part of some large master plan in our lives, but that categorically would not be the case. So I was pastoring at Park Cities. As you said, we loved the church, loved being there, thrilled the opportunity to do that uh, just on every level. And back in about 2009, there was a couple in the church, very good friends of ours, who sold their business for a great deal of money. They came to my wife and me with the belief that we should be about a larger Ministry, they would help financially. We had no idea what that looked like. They didn't really know what that looked like. My passion all these years has been speaking truth to cultural and intellectual issues, whether it's in, as a philosophy professor, a pastor, whatever I've been doing that had always been the thing I love doing. And so as we just really kind of thought and prayed about that, it became very clear. That, in fact, God was calling us to launch a full-time ministry, to be able to speak into the issues of the day, to equip Christians, to use their influence more effectively for the gospel. So I went to my best friend in the world. He and I have been serving together since 1988. His name is Jeff Bird, Reverend Bird. His background's in business and management. And I asked if he would do it with me, and he agreed to do that. So because we're so smart, we started a donor-based ministry in the height of the Great Recession back in 2009, just two of us. Didn't have a name, didn't have a logo, didn't have a mission statement, didn't have a business plan. We just knew we were supposed to do that, and these donors helped us to get this started. And that's really where it all began. We knew we were supposed to speak truth to culture and engage Christians, equip Christians to use their influence for Christ, and that's really all we knew. And from then till now, it really genuinely has been the hand of God and the blessing of God and an incredible team that God has brought to work with us. So that's really the story.
1: Well, if it makes you feel any better, we started this ministry December 2019, right before mm, COVID. Good so, idea. you know, yeah. that was a real brilliant plan, right? But God knew, and He He had it all prepared for us from mm-hmm. the beginning. So, well, this is our book club episode. A lot of people um, go through books with us, and that's so fun. Um, people need to start reading um, I know you're you love to talk to people about reading, but you've actually written thirty books, which makes me um, ill just thinking about it, as I've only read written a few. But this book, The Coming Tsunami, is I, I instantly was attracted to the topic. I knew I wanted to read it, and actually, we show up on page uh, seventy six. We'll get into that later. Uh, as I was reading, I'm like, oh, there's Christians engaged. But anyway, <laughs> you wrote this book because there are four movements that are happening in our culture and have been happening over our history that are all coming to a breaking point. I want to just kind of go through those and inspire people to read this book over the coming months. So first is the post-truth culture. Can you talk about that uh, slightly? What are we talking about as it relates to American culture with post-truth?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So so the whole idea of the book, as you say, is a tsunami, is a tidal wave you can see, caused by underwater forces you can't see. It could be an underwater volcano as happened recently in the South Pacific. It could be a mudslide, an asteroid. 80% of the time it's underwater earthquakes. There was a, such an earthquake in 2011, for instance, off the coast of Japan that kill, uh, killed 135,000 people, I believe, cost $235 billion in damage. And so I'm arguing that there are these four underwater earthquakes that together are causing this rising tide of opposition we have not seen in American history. And the first one, where you're starting, is exactly the place to start because it's foundational to all the others. It's a rejection of biblical truth. The short version is the idea that your mind interprets your senses, my mind interprets my senses, your mind isn't mine, your senses aren't mine, so there can be no such thing as objective truth. And that goes back to Immanuel Kant and the moderns and the postmoderns and a lot of story behind that that I tell in the book, but the short version is this idea that everybody has their own truth. In 2016, post-truth was the word of the year, according to Oxford University Dictionary. Only 24% of Americans think the Bible is the literal word of God. The percentage who think the Bible is myth has doubled in the last 20 years. Saw the other day, 76% of Americans say morality is whatever works for you that doesn't hurt me. 92% say they are their own sole determiner of moral truth. So this makes the Bible a diary of religious experience that you have no right to force on me any more than I can force the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita on you. The Bible is just a diary. Everybody has their own truth. You have no right to force your beliefs on me. That's where we are today. That's this post-truth culture where we find ourselves, and it's foundational to everything else, the other three earthquakes and everything else that's happening in the culture today.
1: Well, and I don't want to give away um, the reason why you wrote this book is to provide the antidote, but let's just go through the antidotes as we talk about the four tsunamis, if you don't mind, because this is really important, the post-truth culture, because if we don't get back to the Word of God, you know, we're in trouble in our personal lives, in our families, in our communities What is the antidote? How are we motivating the body of Christ to go deeper in the Word of God right now, Dr. Dennison? Yeah,
2: it's a great question. Really, three responses here. The first is logical. To say there is no such thing as truth is to make a truth claim. There's no such Mm -hmm. thing as truth, and I'm sure of it, you know? Right. It fails a practical test as well. If all truth is personal, individual, and subjective, does that just make the Holocaust Hitler's truth? I just got back from Israel a couple of weeks ago. I've led 35 study tours to Israel over the year. We always go to Yad Vashem, the Shoah Holocaust Museum. There, and I cry every time. Yeah, every time. Well, if the post yeah Well, if the post truth culture is right, then is that just Hitler's truth? Is the invasion of Ukraine just Putin's truth? So it fails the practical test. But ultimately, the way I think to respond is on the level of relevance. In the first century, you didn't have a printed Bible, you didn't have the institutional church we have today, so they demonstrated the truthfulness of Scripture by the relevance of Scripture. For instance, they couldn't outlaw abandoning babies, unwanted babies, so they'd rescue the babies and adopt them. They couldn't outlaw slavery, so they purchased the slaves and they set them free. They showed the culture the relevance of biblical truth in their lives, and that attracted others to the relevance of truth for them. Well, that's where we are today. If we can show a skeptical culture the difference the Bible makes in our lives, they'll be attracted to that difference. They'll make my truth their truth, and that's how they will meet the truth. So, I'm, so I have to live by God's word and then make it relevant to the world
1: so I'm the I'm the practical girl so what this practically looks like is we stay married right mm-hmm. <laughs> We live out our faith day to day we raise godly children we make sure our business uh, has ethics right and we're mm-hmm. engaging with the culture as real Christ followers and real disciples of Christ so that they don't see us as hypocrites but they see us as truth That's right. seekers right?
2: Absolutely critical. Absolutely the case. That's really our challenge, is to demonstrate the difference Christ makes in our lives so we can show the difference Christ makes in the culture. The clergy abuse scandal has been obviously horrific on the merits, just on the merits. It's just beyond horrific. But what it's done to undermine the integrity of biblical witness has also been horrific. And the degree to which the culture looks at us as hypocrites and thinks, well, why would I want what you claim when it doesn't make in your life the change you claim it'll make in my life? And so really, at the end of the day, it starts with me. If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. We want to get to the land being healed, but it has to start with my heart being healed. I have to live biblically before I can ask the culture to live biblically.
1: Amen. Well, it means that we have to run to Jesus and in the place of prayer and intimacy with him, right? So let's get into the second tsunami, which is the sexual revolution. I mean, we all know in the 60s and 70s, what was kind of birth, the seeds then are bearing uh, not very good fruit right now. Um, And all of the folks that were like, you know, a few years ago going, you know, this isn't going to be so bad if we change the definition of marriage from one man to one woman, oh, that's not going to produce anything. Um, what are we seeing today and And what do we do about um, the restoration of a godly family, Dr. Dennison? Mm-hmm.
2: No, you're right. That is the second earthquake. Absolutely. And by far the most visible one. You go back to 1953 and Hugh Hefner and normalizing pornography. 1960, birth control is legalized and now couples can have sex outside of marriage with less fair pregnancy. You're thinking about Woodstock and the sexual revolution, so-called. 1969, the Stonewall riots and the starting of normalizing LGBTQ behavior. That's still going on today, of course, in popular culture. Pride Month, all that's inside that. We move from normalizing to legalizing. 2015, fell legalizing uh, same-sex marriage, that's continuing. The next phase is legalizing polygamy, which mm-hmm. is already happening, and a number of mu- municipalities on the other side of legalizing same-sex marriage. And then from normalizing and legalizing, now we're in stigmatizing those who disagree as homophobic and bigoted and discriminatory, and we're moving to criminalizing disagreement. With the so-called Equality Act, religious exemption accountability project, things like that that we can talk about. So we're in this season now where what was promised to us as a shifting culture that has no victims, that is just consensual people doing what they wish to do, is now being demonstrated to have catastrophic consequences on every side. My friend John Stone Street at the Colson has a Colson Center has a terrific statement. He says, ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. One example would be, for instance, transgender activism and women's sports now being demonstrated that what's happening there to allow biological males to compete as females is not only unfair, as we saw recently with a swimmer that was ranked 462nd as a male and first as a female, The treatments that this individual went through didn't change the individual's height or pelvic size, weight or width or their lung capacity or their arms or their hands or all their innate advantages as a swimmer. But now we're worried about seventh grade girls sharing their locker rooms with biological males. We're seeing abuses that are rising. We're seeing this in the prisons. We're seeing this in women's shelters as we're seeing transgender activism victimizing women. On so many levels, we're seeing the degree to which so-called marriage equality is now stealing religious liberty from Americans, where we have no religious basis to disagree with all that's inside that. I'm resident scholar for ethics with Baylor Scott and White Health. We're watching the so-called Equality Act because one reading of it could normalize abortion Mm -hmm. as a civil right. We could not refuse to provide on the basis of our religious exemptions and our religious differences. We're very concerned about that possibility. I'm not saying that will happen if Quality Act becomes law, but it's certainly a possibility. And so we're seeing religious freedom being victimized for all Americans, not just evangelicals across the board. We're seeing another example very quickly. Johns Hopkins has recently come forward with research demonstrating that so-called gender affirmation therapies or sex change surgeries are not delivering on what they were promised. In fact, those that undergo these therapies, I think the number was 19 times more likely to commit suicide than their peer group. And so we're just demonstrating again and again that we don't break the Word of God, we break ourselves on the Word of God. The man I did my doctoral dissertation on, J.V. Langley-Casserly, said when you jump out of a fifth-story window, you don't break the law of gravity, you illustrate the law of gravity. And that's what we're seeing in this second earthquake, this rejection of biblical morality that is all around us today.
1: Well, and I just was hanging out with a psychologist the other day and she was saying what happened was they just started changing the definitions, right, in psychology. Mm -hmm. So we saw sodomy laws go away, right, because all of a sudden homosexuality is not a mental illness anymore. Mm -hmm. It's normalized behavior. And then we just keep going, right, with the Mm -hmm. transgender movement and everything that we're seeing today. Um, But it really is calling the body of Christ back. It's a clarion call because... As we said, the Equality Act, which is mistitled, really, <laughs> yes, <very much laughs> it so. should be titled like Anti-Religion Act, but it really is will uh, stifle all communications from anybody that does not pr- say that this is a protected class, Right. Um, That's exactly
2: right. In fact, if I could speak to that for just a moment, if that's all right, there's something inside that we really desperately need to understand, I think. So the so-called Equality Act that's passed the House twice, it's in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Now, President Biden promises to sign it if it reaches his desk. It essentially amends the 1964 civil rights legislation to forbid discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Crucially, it forbids any appeal to the 1993 Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So here's what all of that means in practice, as one example. Let's say I'm back at Park City's Baptist Church, where I was last pastor. We had codes of conduct of what we expected for our staff. Right. Let's say that we had one of our staff members who married somebody of the same sex, violating the biblical code of conduct that we have in place. So we dismiss that person because they violated that code of conduct. The Equality Act, however, is law. Let's say this person files a lawsuit. A judge issues an injunction. If we don't obey the injunction, I go to jail. That's correct. That's the consequence of the so called Equality Act. The same would be true for religious colleges and universities, for religious ministries across the country. If we don't obey transgender and LGBTQ activism as a protected civil right, we go to jail. Now, ultimately, the Equality Act, I've been told by legal experts, Ken Starr, others I've spoken with about this, say it's unconstitutional. It eventually would be overturned by the Supreme Court if it ever became law, but that could be years down the way. We're under its threat all those years. We're paying the bill for all of that jurisprudence, that legislation, until finally it's overturned. And the bigger issue, even than all of that, is what it represents in the culture. There really is this rising belief that my position on same-sex marriage is just as discriminatory as if I had that position relative to interracial marriage. Dick Durbin, who's chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, likened opponents of the Equality Act to white supremacists burning crosses in front yards. That really is the growing consensus of the culture, is that we are just as discriminatory as if we were white supremacists, or we were on some level supporting the horrors and the sinfulness of racism. But that's how the culture is coming to see Christ followers, and we need to know that so that we can respond redemptively.
1: Well, and that's why people need to dig into this. This is all in your book, uh, The Coming Tsunami. Um, Talk to us for a minute about that. We are being defined now, Christians, Bible-believing Christians that believe in marriage between one man and one woman, Mm -hmm. are being defined as dangerous. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're being defined as these horrible people, but really, we're people of love. We love people. We want to see God transform people's lives, right? Right. We don't care what they do other than we want to see them redeemed, right? Mm-hmm. But we're seeing being uh, you know, marked as racist, uh, bigotry, all this stuff. What do we do, Dr. Dennison? How do we show the love of Jesus in a culture that wants to define us that way?
2: Yeah, it's a very practical question. First thing we have to do is what we're doing right now, which is understand the nature of the threat. Second thing we have to do is make sure they're wrong. Make sure that I'm not homophobic. Make sure that I understand that God loves all of us. As Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there were only one of us. Being gay is not the unpardonable sin. We are all broken sexually. I'm just as temptable heterosexually as somebody else is homosexually. But I pastored four large churches over the years, and we had a number of staff failures. They were never homosexual in nature. They were always heterosexual in nature. And so we need to understand that we are beggars helping beggars find bread. That we are broken as well. We have to do this in a spirit of humility. Right. That recognizes the LGBTQ individual is not our enemy. Satan's the enemy. They are victims of bad ideas. They are victims of temptation. They're victims of of a whole ideology that is harmful to them. And so we have to make certain that we're not homophobic. That, in fact, we're speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says. And then third, we have to put that belief into action. We need to build relationships across these cultural barriers. We've got to earn the right to be heard. If I come to my gay friends and say to them, for instance, the Bible teaches that God intends sex to be between a man and a woman in marriage, and therefore homosexual sexual activity is harmful, and I can show them secular research about suicide rates and depression rates and all of that, and I can make that argument. If I haven't earned the right to have that conversation relationally, they're going to hear that as a rejection of who they are. Right. And I understand that. I'd feel the same way when someone comes to me and says, "Do you understand how dangerous evangelical Christians are? How dangerous to society is to it is to be an evangelical Christian?" And then they were to try to make this argument with me. I'm going to feel rejected by their rejection of my beliefs, of my lifestyle, of my identity. If they haven't earned the right to have the conversation, that's the only way I can hear them. Right. So we have to earn the right. We have to build the relationships. We have to speak the truth in love. And then fourth, ultimately, we trust the Holy Spirit to do what human words can't do. We can't change hearts. We can't save souls. We can't change lives. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We're asking him to use us as instruments to the transformation only he can create. So if we'll do those things, if we will decide we're going to understand the issue, we're going to pray that our hearts are pure. We're going to build relationships, and we're going to trust the Spirit to use our witness in the lives of others. Then we can be means to redemption rather than rejection. And we can be catalysts not to a tsunami, but to a transformation which is what we need in our culture today.
1: So good. I mean, people need to hear that. We are lovers of his presence, and we're lovers of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts men of all sin, right? That's right. Um, And it's ultimately his responsibility. Our responsibility is to love and to bring the truth in love. That's so good. That's right. That's a good, good clarion call. But the big but is what do all these parents and grandparents do that feel like their children and grandparents, uh, grandchildren are being indoctrinated with these wrong ideas in our culture, which gets to our next tsunami, which is critical race theory that has been being taught for years and years, but it's come to a crisis point in our culture where everybody's talking about it. Um, as we're seeing moms, uh, and pastors start running for school boards and we're seeing a movement, our, our, Job here at Christians Engage is to find the awakening church, plug them into prayer, voting and engagement and educate Mm -hmm. them on what to do. And so we're constantly mentoring people how to run for school board, how to get active in their world. But talk to us about critical race theory, what we're seeing in our education systems, higher ed and even corporate training. Right now. Sure.
2: Yeah. So there's some background here that's called critical theory. Critical race theory is an application of it. Back in the 20s and 30s in Germany, what's called the Frankfurt School, uh, Max Horkheimer, who coined the phrase in 1937, critical theory is a Marxist construct. It believes that life is experienced in classes. You have majority classes and minority classes. And according to critical theory, the majority class got to be the majority by oppressing the minority, by definition. So the solution is to, on whatever level is necessary, whether it's through legislation or violence or whatever it takes, you want to raise up the oppressed and, if necessary, oppress the oppressors in order to equal, to level the playing field. Well, that's what critical theory says. In the early 1970s, it was applied by a legal scholar named Derek Bell to racism in a very esoteric ways, as a pretty sophisticated legal theory, trying to expose systemic racism in the legal structures in America critical race theory. It can be applied to gender. It can be applied to uh, sexual minorities There are any number of ways in which critical theory can be applied. But that's the background. We didn't really know much about it until the murder of George Floyd and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and all of that and so-called CRT starts coming up. One of the challenges we have with it, and you've already alluded to this, there's really no such thing as CRT per se. There's no one book that defines CRT, uh, that everybody agrees with. There's no one doctrine that exactly is critical race theory. It's more of a category of ideas, I think. There are really kind of five ways of looking at it within kind of a biblical construct. One would be to say, does systemic racism exist? And the answer tragically is, yes, it does. So grateful for Jim Crow laws being gone. So grateful for the civil rights movements that we've had and the degree to which we moved away from racism. But it's still a fact that a black person is twice as likely to be executed for killing a white person as a white person for killing a black person. It's still a fact that black people serve 20 percent longer prison sentences than white people for the same crime. 38 percent more likely to be sentenced to death than white people for the same crime. Someone did a survey recently. White sounding, excuse me, African-American sounding names had to send 50 percent more resumes than white sounding names to get an interview. There still are places in our culture where racism is a reality, as my African-American friends can, can attest. And that's one thing we do need to learn is the reality of this. And we want to be responding biblically, redemptively. Right. Christians were helping to lead the civil rights movement in the 60s. And we want William Wilberforce abolishing slavery. We want to be doing that. Second level is a racism in my heart. Well, I need to pray about that. I actually have an African-American friend who helps me with that. If he sees me write or say or do something that on some level concerns him, I've asked him to help me to understand. I don't know what it's like to be black or to be Asian or to be female. I don't know what that's like, and I need help in that space. Third is personal reparations where I've done wrong. That's Zacchaeus. Paying back when he stole that's Jesus' statement if you bring your gift to the altar. Remember, your brother has something against you. Leave your gift at the altar, be reconciled to your brother, then present your gift. I think that's biblical. Where we get in trouble are the fourth and the fifth. The fourth is cultural reparations, where, for instance, white people owe reparations to black people culturally. That's that Marxist idea. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. I'm not even sure how you would do that practically, but that's an unbiblical model, I think. And then the fifth is historic reparations, going all the way back to 1619 when the first enslaved Africans were brought to this continent, and the idea that reparations are owed all the way back to that. Again, the Bible says that the son's not responsible for the sins of the father, and I'm not even sure practically. That would be Ibram Kendi. That would be anti-racism, and that's a lot of what we're seeing taught. Now, the challenge, if I could add very quickly, is we're not saying— that CRT is being taught as a class in schools per se. These principles we're discussing are being taught in sociology classes and history classes and literature classes and even in religion classes. And so what you want to be watching for are these principles that remove any personal agency that say that there's no such thing as personal sin. It's white sin against black victims, for instance. This idea that we want to be teaching our children to express their whiteness, to repent of their whiteness as a class category. Those are the things you want to be watching for because they're unbiblical. At the end of the day, it's victimizing minorities. It's saying to minorities, you have no way out unless we make this massive class revolution. You have no way forward. It has no explanation for minorities that are succeeding in our culture. It has no explanation for minority crime on minorities. And at the end of the day, it's a mistake to get to that fourth and fifth lane where we're looking at reparations as a solution when really repentance is the solution. So it's a complex subject, a complex set of issues. But I'm so grateful for your organization and others that are alerting parents, pastors, Christians to be engaged in their schools, to be engaged in the politics of their local community, I'm convinced God's calling more Christians into public service and they're answering the call. Amen. And I believe God wants to redeem this moment to bring more Christians into public service at a time when we need them so much.
1: So good. Well, first point I have to respond to is it's awesome Mm -hmm. being a woman. We get to wear really cool clothes and we get to fix our (laughs) hair and it's really fun. No, Mm -hmm. um, but seriously, there is a a lack of biblical understanding on these issues. We've been Mm -hmm. doing classes online with um, our friend Ben Quine. I know you're familiar with Ben's Mm -hmm. work, Mm -hmm. Um, but we just did his racism class and we've been teaching me and Ben have been teaching through that. And then we're on his biblical justice class which by the way this is airing on a Thursday you guys can join us for the second week of biblical justice on Monday so uh so go ahead and sign up and you can get the video from last week keep going but we have to dig into the word and set the foundation right. and even in the racism class we were talking about you know we're one human family right we're one human family and if we right. can establish there's yeah That's there's right. only one race if we can establish that biblically then we can filter through all the noise and all the commentary and all that and come to some truth. So, um, lastly, Mm -hmm. and I know I'm running out of time with you, but I would love to talk to you for three hours. Um, Thank you. Secular religion. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a big one. Um, I call it the progressive church, but there is a moving from fundamental basic Christian doctrine Mm -hmm. into a secularized religion. And we just put Jesus on everything. Um, How do we combat that in our own individual lives to be aware of the heresy and the itching ears and all the stuff that's coming at us, uh, Dr. Dennison, and all those fun Christian podcasts that young people listen to that are leading people astray from biblical truth? Mm -hmm. Um, How do we combat secular religion? What do we do?
2: Yeah, thank you. It's on two levels. There's the one side of it that would say all religion is dangerous. We now know that religion flies planes into buildings, causes 9 clergy abuse scandals. What we're seeing right now at the Temple Mount, just got back from Israel, what we're seeing at the Temple Mount, people are saying, see, that's just religion. And we just have to get rid of religion, The religion is dangerous, and replace it with a secular ideology, a radical secular ideology. Robert George at Princeton and other people are warning us about that. Another version of it is more what you're alluding to, which is a secularized Christianity, an idea of a kind of a uh, sort of a consumeristic Christianity. It's a transactional religion. It goes back to the Greco-Roman world. Place a sacrifice at the altar so the gods will bless your crops. Keep you safe when you go to war or whatever it is. Go to church on Sunday so God will bless you on Monday. Read the Bible so God will bless your day. Give money so God will bless your money. God's a means to your end is where that comes to. The ultimate solution here is back to how Jesus began his ministry. When he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He taught us to seek first the kingdom of God. He taught us to pray that kingdom come. When he comes back, his name will be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All through the Bible, God is a king. In our culture, God is a hobby. God is for Sunday, but not Monday. God is a means to your end. God is something to make you feel better. You measure religion by what you get out of it rather than what you give to it. Whereas Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. We're to be crucified with Christ. We're to present our lives a living sacrifice. So on a practical level, this starts every single day. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, that's the foundation, of course. Ask Jesus to forgive your sins and be your Savior and Lord. That's how you become the child of God. Once you've done that, you are the child of God. You'll always be the child of God. But you have to give God each day as each day comes. I can't give tomorrow because it doesn't exist. So I start the day getting alone with God. Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit. What that means is I get with the Lord and I say, Holy Spirit, show me anything I need to confess. Confess whatever comes to your mind. Ask God to forgive you and cleanse you and restore you. Then literally submit your life and your day to God. Ask the Holy Spirit to take control of your day. Put him on the throne of your heart. Get off the throne. Someone said, if you want to get along with God, stay off his throne. Submit to Jesus and stay surrendered through the day. Keep him king of your day. I prayed before this conversation and asked Jesus to be king of our conversation. Heard myself say things I didn't plan to say, and I'm grateful for that. Stay surrendered. If you fall to temptation, ask him to forgive you and cleanse you and restore you, plug you back in. Stay submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you'll do that, Jesus will make himself so alive in you that your light will shine. And the darker the room, the more powerful the light. And that's the good news we get to claim today.
1: Well, way to preach the gospel. That's a great way to end. Um, We have to dive into God, and one thing that we do here with Christians Engaged is we have a Bible study on Monday morning. We're going through the Book of Nehemiah right now to try to incredibly, you know, lead people to walking with Jesus in the simplicity of prayer, worship, the Word of God, because there's nothing more important in this hour then that's our clarion call for the church is to walk in intimacy with God and to know his word so that we can combat all of these coming tsunamis. So you guys grab Dr. Dennison's book, um, sign up for the daily article at Denison Forum. Is it Mm denisonforum.org? That's correct. Yeah. And you have to get his daily article. It's so good. Follow Dr. Dennison on social media, grab this book on audio or Um, on Amazon or wherever you get your books. And we're going to read this through the the month of May. And then at the end of the month, everybody, we're going to discuss this in greater detail. So you can hop on a zoom meeting with me and I will have it all marked up. And thank you. I forgot to mention, uh, Christians engaged. Our IRS case was mentioned on page seventy seven. So mm-hmm. you guys are going to have to grab the book so you can figure out what happened to us on page seventy seven. So thank you, Dr. Dennison, so much. What? How? Any other ways that they need to connect with you, or uh, how can how can you help them even further?
2: Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. The umbrella organization here is Dennison Ministries. Our goal is to build a movement of culture-changing Christians. And so we have a cultural engagement piece. It's Denison Forum that you've been alluding to. That's a lot of what I spend my time in. First 15, first15.org is our daily devotional resource to help Christians have a transforming encounter with Christ every day. Foundations with Janet.org is my wife's Bible teaching ministry. That's our expositional ministry. We have ChristianParenting.org with, I think, 29 different podcast sources to encourage parents and equip parents to raise children, to know and love the Lord. A pastor's view is our leadership resource that Dr. Mark Terman on our team leads. We're trying to encourage and equip pastors and Christian leaders. All that's available at denisonministries.org. That's the umbrella. And then the cultural engagement part of it is the denisonforum.org that you mentioned. That's where we started was Denison Forum. And then we built the larger lanes on the freeway out to Denison Ministries, which is the larger organization, about 6.8 million in the total monthly reach of Denison Ministries. Denison forms about 2.9 million right now in our monthly reach. and All of that is, by God's grace, uh, the privilege that we have to try to help build this movement of Christians using their influence to shape the culture for Christ.
1: Well, you never saw that when you stepped down from Park City's Baptist no. Church. So God, to God be all the glory. And thank you, Dr. Dennison, for being obedient to the call of God on your thank life you. and being a culture you, changer in America.
2: That's my privilege. God bless. Glad to be with you today.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of Conversations with Christians Engaged. Please subscribe to this podcast so you don't ever miss an episode. Also, please review it and share it with your friends. The easiest way to connect with us is to take the pledge on our website at christiansengaged.org. There you can sign up for our weekly prayer text, our bi-weekly emails, and our voting reminders. Christians Engaged is supported by individuals just like you. Would you consider helping us with a monthly donation or a one-time gift? You can do that quickly at christiansengaged.org. What does America need in this hour? America needs you. We are here to serve you and encourage you as you impact your communities. Let's be Christians engaged for the well-being of our nation.